This week's podcast comes with lashings of sadness after the tragic death of former Saints defender and all-round good guy, Danny Frawley. We touch on his legacy later in the episode, but also dive into the big issues from week one of the finals, including who wins the semis, Geelong's September struggles under Chris Scott, and the enigma that is Nick Natanui. You're listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast. It's obviously been a really horrifically sad 24 hours in footy with Danny Frawley's passing. A giant of the game gone far too soon after just turning 56, and our thoughts go out to his friends and family. But there's still a stack to debate and discuss after the first week of the finals, and with me as always is Jake Michaels. Hello, a big weekend for you. It was, yeah, a uh, very big weekend, but yeah, very, very saddened and shocked to hear the, the Danny Frawley news. I, I didn't know him that well, but I had met him a few times at, ga- at various games, and he is generally is a ripper bloke, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Not a bad word said about him from, from all um, involved in the football community. Um, and also joining us for the second week behind the microphone is Jesse Robinson. Welcome back, mate. Thanks, mate. Glad to be back. Had a lot of fun last week. Let's do it again. Good to have you back with us again. And as always, we've got champion data's Christian Jolly with us too. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Very good. There's plenty to dive into, so let's get stuck into our first segment. It's time for three on three. Three on three is, of course, the segments there. We try to uh, debate and analyse three of the biggest uh, topics in footy. And, and one that really stood out from the first game of this final series was Nick Nat Newey's return. He seemed to inspire the Eagles in their elimination final win against Essendon. And, and as always with Nick Nat, it's really tough to rate his game when you look at the stat sheet. Um, and it got us thinking how hard it is to judge the star Rackman, not just from Thursday night, but his whole career. Christian, what did the stats stay about, uh, say about the enigma that is Nick Nat? Uh, so, again, looking just from this one game uh, from Thursday night uh, against Essen, so he played 53% of the game time, and probably, in my eyes, it's one of the best 53% games <laughs> I've ever seen. I thought the impact that he had was um, outstanding. So just looking across that game, when he was in the ruck, the Eagles uh, for clearances were 21-17, so won the clearances by four with him in the ruck, and they were 10-16 when he was out of the ruck, so they were behind in the clearance count without him. But it's the scores that he got from those clearances and from the stoppages that Nick Nat knew he was in the ruck. They scored 25 points to one from clearances with Nat Nui as their ruckman. When he wasn't in the ruck, they scored 19 to 12. So they still outscored Essendon without him being in the ruck, but absolutely dominated them, sort of, you know, 25 to one. So sort of talking about it pre-pod with you guys, it's always a hard one with Nick Nat Nui to judge because West Coast is such a strong team. So it's not like they need Nick Nat Nui to win games. Um, so looking at the last two years with him, they've got a winning percentage of 74%. Without him, 72%. So you're still winning, you know, three quarters of the games without him or with him. But it's just how much he elevates them when he does play. They, he, so their average margin without him has been plus 10.8 points per game. When he plays, they're plus 20.8 points per game. So an extra 10 points per game on the scoreboard just from playing that Nui. There's not many players in the comp that would sort of give their team a, an extra 10 points just by playing, surely. I don't, yeah, I don't think it is. Again, with midfielders, they're sort of, again, the best midfielders, Dangerfield, Bonsapalli. Take them out of the side. Another midfielder's going to step up. You're going to probably lose, you know, 2 or 3% from your midfield, but you've got, a, you've got four or five guys that are ready to step up in that position. The way Nick Natanui plays in the ruck, there's no one in the competition that can replace him. The thing with Natanui, and I think this is something that everyone is fully aware of, is we just haven't seen him for a long enough period of time. Every time he starts to find that rhythm and momentum and he looks like an absolute game-breaker like he did on Thursday night, he gets injured. And as sad as it is, we just kind of expect him to just get another injury and then be, and then miss more football. But look, I'll put the question to you guys. If he is healthy and, and stays fit for this final series... I mean, what do you think West Coast can do it? 
They're the reigning premiers, and we're talking about the luxury of adding one, possibly a top three ruckman behind uh, Gorn and Grundy, straight back into that mix, replacing Tom Hickey, who's been very solid for the Eagles. But look at the he's luxury. no Nat Nui. We're adding ten <laughs> points a game to the reigning premiers, who did finish fifth, but clearly yeah, were one of the but, top. But, but remember, they're going to they're going to have to win three three more games now. They don't have that luxury of they don't they can't slip up. He That's, does he does look like the X factor that can take the Eagles from maybe petering out in a semi or prelim final to actually challenging on the last day of, uh, last Saturday of September. Um, but it, I've always found him a really difficult player to judge. Um, I think a lot of people, certainly myself, I think a lot of people get sucked in by his highlights reel and what he does. I think a lot of people that they might see a two or three minute highlights package of Nick Nat and go, wow, he's got to be one of the best players in the league. But I think a lot of people overlook what he can't do as well. The fact that he doesn't really get much footy around the ground. He can't play long minutes. Um, and maybe just for devil's advocate's sake, I'm not sure exactly if, if he is one of the best ruckmen in the league because of a, a lot of what he doesn't do. So I can see why that argument exists. I, I rate him as one of the absolute superstars of the competition in the last few years. But when you look at his honours and what he's actually achieved, one all Australian, uh, you know, no no best and fairest, you know, no Brownlows. He's won a mark of the year. So it is. It's that. It's that sort of watching him and what he can do is is the best in the competition. But what he has done as an overall product, it probably just holds him back a little bit. Well, I find it interesting that you said before, Jesse, that he's not at the Gorn Grundy level. We probably all agree that those two are ahead of him. But when you look at what he can do, forget what he can't do. Everyone's always hung up on what people can't do. But look at what he can do. What he can do, he does better than anyone. Maybe we're anyone. just spoiled. Gorn and Grundy is so good in the ruck, and then the stuff they do around the ground, maybe we're just lucky to have two superstars like that, and Nick Nat's more of a pure ruckman that we're more used to before we had the Gorn and Grundy era. Who would you choose fully fit right now for your teams? If you wanted to win a game of footy tomorrow for the teams that you support, who would you want in the ruck? If it was to win a game of footy tomorrow, I'd probably take Nat Nui, but if it was to win for a whole season, I'd take Grundy because I just don't feel confident that Nat Nui's going to stay fit for 12 months. Anyone else? I'd, I'd still have Grundy just ahead of him. Um, because of that overall, he'll, he'll still get you another 20 disposals outside of the ruck. But Nat Nui not far behind is my second choice. Give me Max Gorn. The, I think he's the best tap ruckman in the league, and the, the intercept marks he takes are so important. I think there's a, a bit of a hair's breadth between all three of them, um, but he's certainly going to be one of the, the most, I guess, fascinating storylines of this whole um, September, the fact that he, he might be able to be the, the difference between West Coast he might going be back Mr. to back. September. He might be Mr. September. Um, speaking of September, we'll move on to our second topic and, and turn our attention to the semifinals. Um, and every year, it seems like the footy uh, media and, and, and experts and fans are like right off the teams that lose their qualifying finals ahead of the sudden death semis. And this year doesn't appear to be any different. Um, with a lot, the Cats and the Lions bounce back against the Eagles and the Giants. Uh, Jake, you're at both the Geelong and Brisbane games this past weekend. Uh, what did you make of each side and, and where do you see the semis going? Well, I really didn't like what I saw from Geelong on Friday night. I thought they started poorly, which they've had a bit of a tendency to do um, in finals. And they just really never got back into that game. I know it finished 10 points and they actually had a chance to win it late, but the, it, it should never have got that close. Um, too many... Too many players that didn't step up in the final. I mean, Danger played pretty well. He led them quite well. But there, were, there was just too many that didn't do anything. And Tom Hawkins, he was the one for me. Tom Hawkins and, and Joel Selwood, they were the two that really needed to stand up. And, and neither of them had great games. So I, I'm expecting a bit of a response for them. Otherwise, gee, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Chris Scott. For the Lions, though, I really like what I saw from Brisbane. And had they not, had they converted their chances in the first quarter, I reckon they would have won that game. Uh, you know, look, we can look at the final margin that 
the eight goals or whatever it was for the Tigers. But, gee, they were all over them in that first quarter and quarter and a third. They just couldn't score. That was the issue. They couldn't kick their goals. And then Richmond, it doesn't help when you got the other team going up the other end and kicking one every time they go inside 50. So... I wouldn't jump off the lines yet. I know it's. I know it was a tough loss, but I can see them bouncing back this week, just just as we've seen them do throughout the season. Yeah, just with the lines, I think they did have the worst possible opponent for first week of the finals. You know, we all know where they've come from the last five or six years, where they've been on the ladder, finally getting to finals. Um, we kept they kept telling us they're not as experienced in finals as everyone was making them out to be because they did have Lincoln McCarthy, Christian. They had guys that had played in finals, but as a team, they had never played finals together as that team to come up against Richmond, who are just. They're just built for finals at the moment. The way they're steamrolling opponents, they sort of, you know, let's not forget the Brisbane, that uh, Richmond's won ten straight games. It's not like they're, as you say, Correct, they're, they're, yeah. the, they're the team. To and the beat. Lions had them on toast for that first quarter they and did. a half. And if they had have kicked straight, it, it's amazing how different a, a game of footy can can turn out if one team kicks straight and the other one doesn't. Well, you could see their heads drop. I mean, they were all over them. They should have been up by four or five goals, and you could see that they visibly their their heads dropped, especially when. I mean, it's hard to take when you keep missing mm-hmm. and then the other team who, who who's not playing anywhere near your level keeps going into their forward line and kicking a goal. It's back to the middle. And then all of a sudden, it's like, how are we behind by three goals? It's like we should be in front by three. So yeah. so we yeah. track expected score. So that is, if you're scoring all your shots at goal at expected league accuracy, what you, what you would have scored across the game. So the first quarter... Uh, going by expected scores, should have been 31 to 15 uh, Brisbane's way, so up by 16 points. I think they had about a 14 or 15 point lead anyway, so that stayed true. Second quarter really hurt them, though. Sort of, this expected score should have been 53 to 41, so they should have actually kicked 22 points in the second quarter. I think they finished with four or five points, so that that really hurt them, but they should have been up by two goals at halftime by expected scores. Uh, by three-quarter time, they were down 69-77 um, in expected scores, and at full time, they finished behind 94-97. So they... they the expected scores don't say they should have won that game, but they should have been within a kick <laughs> yeah. at, the, at the final siren. Amazing. So do we expect the Lions to bounce back against the Giants? We we always look at winning form, and we, we very much, as an industry, are very much what happened last week. Do, do people assume that the Giants, now that they've got a, a little bit of a roll-on from, from beating the Bulldogs, to, to, to overcome the Lions? My concern for the Lions is that they lose their talisman. Mitch Robinson's going to be out this week with a hamstring injury, and I think he was him and Zorko were the ones that set the tone last week. From the bounce, they were they were on. The tackling was ferocious, even more so than ever. Without him, and then coming up against a Giants team that have just absolutely roughed up the Bulldogs. Yeah, I was about to say, you saw what the Giants brought to the Bulldogs. If, if they were going to bring that, you'd think Mitch Robinson would have been the first one to sort of go back at them, but Brisbane lose. Isn't that. it funny that we, we say now that Brisbane losing Mitch Robinson ahead of a semi-final is catastrophic? Yeah, I mean, who would have thought that twelve months ago? He's reinvented himself, hasn't he? He really has. He's he's a, he's become a really valuable player for them. And, and you're right, he did. He set the tone. He was their most important player in that first quarter, um, not just for winning the ball. He had more of it than anyone. But it was the fact that, as you say, he's tackling the way he was throwing himself around, like he always does. But it just lifts the intensity in the finals. Yeah, he, they're going to really miss him. But I, I do expect them to bounce back. I think they had a, they. They didn't play badly. They just could not convert their shots. They had enough chances. They had enough inside 50s. They won enough of the ball. They just couldn't convert. On another day when they convert, they win that game and they're they're a favourite to make the grand final. So I wouldn't be jumping off the lines just yet. Looking at the Giants, I think they, they displayed exactly how well they can play when they get their attitude right. Like They seem to be... They've got talent everywhere. Everyone understands that. And their best and worst seems to be whether they've got the correct attitude. And I think they showed against the Bulldogs that when they're hungry, and we'll touch on um, Toby Green in, in our next uh, segment, but the fact that they play with that aggression, the fact that they hunted 
probably one of the best ball hunting teams around in, in the Western Bulldogs showed that they can actually, if they play with that ferocity, I'll give them a huge chance against the Lions. Well, it just shows the the Giants. I think it's what we've all, all been saying throughout the year is that they've got such the, they've got this gap between their best and the worst, which is a bigger gap than any other side. And and we saw what they can do when they're playing well. I mean, they're they're very hard to beat. There's a reason people expected them to be in a lot of grand finals and winning them. They haven't got there yet, but their best is certainly good enough. Um, and they'll they'll challenge the Lions. That that should be a really good game. Who, who knows? It'll probably be the best final that we've seen so far at least we hope so everyone one word tip who's winning that semi-final I'll say Brisbane but not by much I'll stick with Brisbane yeah I'm hoping the Lions win I think they need to to start building on the year they've had go the Lions I'm going to go I'm going to be the outlier here and go the Giants back Um, on the Giants (laughs) back on the Giants Um, and then we the other game obviously is huge in terms of uh, both clubs and uh, we'll touch on, um, we'll do a, a bit of a deep dive with Christian on, on Geelong's struggles in recent years in September. But that, that Geelong West Coast matchup suddenly has much more on it. I mean, whoever bows out is, is really underachieved this year. Um, but the, the Cats, I think, are under all sorts of pressure considering how poorly they played um, on Friday night. Well, it could have been a grand final when you think about it, Geelong West Coast. Um, we know Richmond stormed home, but before, before they got on their run, Geelong West Coast were looking like two of the form sides in the comp. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a shock that they're playing in a semi, but, you know, it, again, it should be close. I think Geelong, people will start to write them off and West Coast look good, but, yeah, I'd still be taking the Cats. One word answers, everyone else. You're on the Cats, Jake? Yeah, uh, yeah, probably Geelong again. I'll stick with the top team. Nick Nat, the X Factor. I think I'm on your side, Jesse. I'm, I'm I'm the classic person that's jumped on the two winners from the, the elimination <laughs> finals, and I'll probably end up with two egg fine, on my two face. fine <laughs> tipsters over here. <laughs> I think you're taking the Mickey. Um, we will move on, and um, sticking with the theme of, of the Giants, as we just spoke about, um, Toby Green was again in the news on the weekend, not just for his fine performance and the fact that he led that team to a fantastic win, but the tribunal hearing um, where he was fined but not not suspended for his clash with Bulldog star Marcus Bontempelli. Um, it, it was a difficult one to judge in terms of where his fingers were um, and exactly what he was doing. Um, and there's no doubt that Green plays on the edge. Um, but the fact that he, that he escaped a ban continued a broader trend this year. And Christian came, um, came to us uh, this morning in the pre-podcast meeting with wanting to touch on the fact that there might be a bit of a trend with suspensions this year, Christian. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, so I just thought it was an eye-opener getting um, the press releases of all the match review findings from each of the finals and I think there was 11 fines handed out um, I might have been 10 handed out through those press releases and then another one handed out to Toby Green last night so I think 11 fines from the weekend it's just got me thinking that geez fines are sort of just 90% of the things I read for suspensions are fines now and I thought that weeks suspension had gone out the window uh, so I sort of dug around a little bit and I think it is it's dropping off so the last player to be suspended for a game this year was Harris Andrews back in round 18 for striking Nick Larkin he was given a week but it also led me to look at how many times had someone been given multiple weeks this year uh, from the tribunal, and it was only once. So Will Setterfield got two weeks for a dangerous tackle um, and you, and earlier you could in the say season. He was maybe a little bit stiff to get two yeah. weeks for that. <laughs> Correct. So I, I think most people, I assume Michael Christian might say the same thing. If the guy didn't get concussed or um, you know leave the ground with injury, he might have got a fine but, for that as yeah, well, or not he guilty. Have got a fine but based that, on what we've seen with others. So that was the only multiple week suspension we've had. So we've had twenty three players uh, rubbed out this year for a week, or you know, for missy or to miss a game, and only one of those be multiple games. Last year, that was the number was twelve multiples, which included an eight week one for Gaff, uh, a five week one for Jeremy Cameron. So some two sort of out there, you know, outlier incidents that you don't see every year. 
Um, but the year before that, there was 15 multiple suspensions handed out. And sort of, yeah, every year before that, there's been, you know, at least always between six and 15 multiple suspensions handed out. So just a very, 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 very low number of one person being suspended for more than one game this year. Just, just sort of got me thinking, has there been a a um, different directive from the match review officer this year that, again, hasn't sort of been spoken about or hasn't been delivered to the public that this is the direction we're going in? Well, I thought at the start of the year, the, the match review and, and the tribunal, if you like, were going to crack down on all of this gut punching and all this nonsense. And I thought there was going to be a lot more Fine, uh, sorry, not fines. A lot more suspensions handed out because, as you see, how, someone like Ben Cunnington, I feel like he gets a fine every week for punching someone in the stomach. I mean, it's yeah. So it's, I think he was the first person this year to be sort of fined three times for the same, uh, same charge, yeah. but not not eventually get a week. They just yeah. Uh, yeah. You're right, Jake. The, the AFL did come out at the start of, or over the preseason or over the off season and said we want to crack down on jumper punches and and we we don't want that that sort of element in our game. And they had so many chances to do that this year. The Cunnington, Fife, Ablett, though. Elbows. Yeah. And they were all fines rather than suspensions, yeah. which just makes you wonder how seriously they actually want to, I guess, to crack down on, yeah, on these, these acts. There's a minimal one that stays in my mind. It was a practice game. So I think first week of JLT, or the week before, GWS played Sydney in a practice match. Um, and Shane Mumford in his first game back whacked someone in the face. Uh, video came out about it and sort of said, you know, we clearly hit someone in the face. I think the tribunal, the match review officer, found that he hit him with an open hand and it was insufficient force, therefore he got nothing, not even a fine. That was just the first example of do not throw your fist yeah. or hand in anyone's direction of the face. If you do that, we're going to fine you. If you make, you know, if you connect and sort of injure the guy, we'll suspend you. That one they sort of said, no, that's fine, that's okay. But it's sort of like you needed to stamp it out from day one. Hundred percent. I've been saying this for years. Why does force matter? If you punch someone as hard as you can, or fifty percent. You're still punching someone. Don't do it. Yep. Why? Why is force and any like the the scale? Just don't do it. How dumb do you have to be to just punch someone? You don't punch someone in the street. Don't punch them on a football field. It's oh, I can't stand it. And back on Toby Green, I think the there has been a directive change from the AFL because they're the prosecution and they asked for a fine. They and their case they presented was for a hefty fine and he pleaded guilty. There yep. was never the suspension wasn't even discussed by the AFL. Correct. And I can't think of the last time a seven thousand five hundred dollar fine was just handed out for an on field action. Like I feel like that fine is telling us Daisy, we we all <laughs> think here in the room, you know, sorry, the match review panel all thought this is worth two weeks, but we don't want to rub you out for final, so we'll just give you a really big fine. I don't know if that sits comfortably with me. I, I feel like it needs it. We shouldn't have different rules in finals versus home and away and, and whatever. But also just exactly that, the directive of, I would have assumed that he was going, he was referred straight to the tribunal to figure out how many weeks he got if he would, if he did something guilty. I think the Giants would have paid a $20,000 fine if it meant he could play in the, yeah. in the game. I mean, it's the fines that many. What are we up to now in terms of how much money has the AFL made in fines? So be- before this week, it was 248000 handy. Oh. Um, I think they've lined themselves with another 23000 I've worked out from this week. So that takes you up to about $261,000 in fines this year. Not bad. Lines the hip pocket of someone, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a fair uh, Christmas party for the folks down at <laughs> AFL House. We do need to find out where that money goes yeah. one day. Uh, we, we will put our I'm going to investigate yeah. next year. Is that we we were talking about multiple week suspensions? Um, obviously, the the biggest suspension this year was was um, Jaden Stevenson's. Um, I guess mitigated outcome of was it an eleven week? Um, yeah, you got eleven yeah, 12, week, twenty two weeks with eleven suspended. I think it was. Yeah, so that, that's an interesting one in, in itself as well. So yes, so that one doesn't appear. I went through the AFL database, went through the tribunal records, um, which again I assume that list that I was looking at tells me who's eligible and not eligible for the railway. This suspension isn't actually in 
Tribunal Records. So it's got me questioning sort of pre-pod. Is Jaden Stevenson eligible for the Brownlow? I, I feel like he might be. That's a joke if he is. That's ridiculous. I, I feel like it's only if you get rubbed out by the tribunal or match review officer. On. Is it an on the field, off the field discrepancy? No, I, I, I think you're you're right, Christian. I think Jaden Stevenson is eligible, and we all know he's not going to win it, but he is eligible to win the Brownlow medal. What a bad look it would be for the AFL if Jaden Stevenson somehow had a hot start of the year has 30 votes by the time he's suspended and Well, wins exactly. It. And I mean, obviously, we, yeah, he's not going to win. But what if this was Patrick Dangerfield in round 23? It came out, oh, he was gambling on games and he went on and won. Think of what people would say if he won the Brownlow. Yep. Horrible. Um, horrible. Uh, it's unreal. Um, I think we might have to wrap that up. That's a, a passionate debate. And we'll, um, obviously, there'll be a lot more to discuss and look ahead to what Toby Green can produce this September. Um, but it is time to move on. How about stat with champion data? We've already touched on Geelong's uh, defeat against Collingwood on Friday night, which was nothing short of a horror show from start to finish. They had, obviously, the noise before the game was the fact that they had to host um, the Magpies at the Magpies' home ground um, and the fact that that their cats were coming off the bye and they started slowly and it cost them dearly. Um, then you add in Chris Scott's decision not to play Reece Stanley, which was a massive bonehead. Um, it <laughs> completely threw out the Cats' ruck stocks and defensive, defensive structures. Um, it continued a pretty poor trend for the Cats. And, and Christian, I think you've got some stats which might uh, paint a pretty uh, sorry picture for Geelong fans. I feel like, I feel like this could go on for hours. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I sort of yeah, jumped on the, um, the news of the week. Everyone's sort of saying you know, how, how bad Geelong's record has been in finals since they won the Premiership in 2011. Uh, with Chris Scott in charge. So in that year, they went 3-0 in the finals and took home the cup. Since then, so since 2011, they're 3-10 in their uh, 13 finals since. Um, so exactly, that, their, their first quarters in finals, they've, been, they've just been out-jumped in most of the finals in that time. So they've only won four of their past 13 first quarters, but they've been outscored 174 to 342 in their last 13 wow. finals first quarters. So just to put that in a quicker number, they've, they've scored 24 goals. Their opposition scored 50 in opening quarters in that time. So it's exactly that. It's it's the coming off coming off a bye. Usually you, you're playing you know, your first final, so they're getting smashed in that opening quarter. It's just a slow start. It's just And that was I think that's what killed them Friday night. I felt like after the second quarter they evened up the game, but they were just too far behind with to begin with. I think they conceded the first 10 inside 50s in the game. They did, yeah. Um, I think the sample size now is big enough to sort of say there is an issue with Geelong coming off the bye. When it was two, two three, four losses, it's like, oh, it might just be coincidence. What is it now? It's like eight in a row or something. Eight in a row they've lost off the bye. It's something crazy like that. I mean, this is getting beyond a joke now. For a team that is... They're not Gold Coast where they lose every week anyway. They're a team that win three quarters of their game. So why are they losing every single week consistently after the bye? Yeah, yeah. It's it exactly. I don't, think, I don't think anyone has the answer for it. I think. But isn't that Chris, Chris, Chris Scott's job to actually fix this issue? Well, I think that's what he's paid for. Uh, remarkable that they can't get it right. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I would have, you know, again, I think we've heard they've probably tried two or three different things. I, I know in the, you know, the mid-season buys probably where they've tried more things coming to the finals. But we've heard different years they've they've ramped up training loads one year and you know deloaded them another. And I think they're they're searching for the answer. Just they clearly haven't found it. But the other thing, sort of, we sat on the last week on the pod and sort of spoke about what numbers to look for in the game. And there was a clear-cut one for Geelong. Sixteen times they'd won the contested possession count this year. And they'd won every game. Six times they'd lost it, and they'd lost each of those games. Well, on Friday night, that got thrown out of the window, as <laughs> usual in finals, as the stats do. But they won the count by 21. So they actually smashed Collingwood in contested ball and didn't win the game. This sort of lines up. I look back, one of the other finals in this time period, 2016 preliminary final against Sydney. 
They won the time in forward half by 28 minutes and 51 seconds. So let's just round that up to 29 minutes. So they had the ball in their forward half for a quarter. Which is huge, right? For that that's state. like a whole quarter, yeah. more than Sydney. Uh, won the inside 50 count by 32. Got beaten by 37 points to Sydney in that 2016 prelim. And I can all the, all, go all the way back, which is outside this time period. The 2008 grand final um, was another one where they had, I think, about close to 20, 25 more inside 50 entries than Hawthorne and lost. So there's been a few Geelong finals where the, the numbers have just been so quirky that they're, the, they're sort of the only team to have lost a final with at least 30 more inside 50s than their opposition. So it happened again on Friday night. Just that, that quirk in the numbers, there's just... I think it was quite um, close until about three-quarter time, and then they just dominated the last quarter, and, and they yeah. blew all the, the contested points. Yeah, I think they were at they were in front, I think, at each break. I kept checking this, and they sort of had their noses in front for most of the game. But it is, it's almost like when finals rolls around, what could go wrong does go wrong with Geelong almost. Um, so sort of looking at some of their numbers from home and away season in that time compared to finals, so the two that sort of stand out for me is their, their forward line, how potent their forward line is and their forward line works. So... During the home and away season from 2012 to the end of you know this year's home and away season, they scored a goal from 26.1% of inside 50s, which was the fifth best of anyone in across all those years. During finals, they've only scored a goal from 19.9% of the inside 50 entries. And there's 16 teams that have played finals in this time period that we're talking about. That's ranked 15th of the 16th. The only team ranked lower than one was Brisbane because they've only played that one final, which was on this weekend. Again, and we just spoke about Brisbane's accuracy. Had they kicked three or four more goals, mm. then they would have got that number a bit higher, leaving Geelong dead last in this stat. So, again, just not being able to kick a goal once getting inside 50. I think the inside 50 numbers stay quite similar to the home and away season. Just can't convert once they get it in there. The first part of that is Mark's inside 50. So, uh, across the last, since 2012, they've averaged 13.5 forward 50 marks per game, which is ranked number one in the competition. During finals, they've only taken 9.4 marks inside 50 per game, which, again, is the second fewest of any team to play finals in that time. That's a big gap. That's that's four. It might not sound like a lot, but that's basically four shots on goal. Correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that's really... Cons- that's that's huge. So, again, sort of haven't, you know, delved into why and how this happens, but, again, they've played 13 finals. It's not like they've lost every final the same way, but these are the sa- these are the numbers that continually sort of stand out is how... how how much their potency of their forward line drops off. So one of the guys, you know, obviously their key figure in their forward line, so Tom Hawkins, uh, again, looking at that time period in the home and away season, 3.3 marks inside 50 per game and 2.6 goals. In his finals, he's down to 1.9 marks per game and 1.4 goals per game in finals. So again, just not getting the same same output from Tom Hawkins in finals as they do in home and away. But again, I wouldn't put that all on Tom Hawkins' shoulders. That would be also because just, you know, the ball movement's just not coming in as cleanly as it does during the home, uh, home and away season. Another sort of quirky number I found is they've only won the kicking efficiency in two of their 13 finals. Uh, so that, again, just hitting the target by foot better than the opposition. They've done so in 124 of their last 175 home and away games. So even that just that hmm. that delivery by foot has dropped off in finals as well. So, so they just can't hit targets when it matters. Again, just sort of, yeah, combing through some of those numbers, that feels like what's been lacking in finals for Geelong um, in this time period is their sort of their ability to score once inside 50 and probably their kicking around the ground has dropped off. So... There's obviously a, a lot of issues, and we can't just pinpoint it to to one area where the Cats have really been struggling in um, in September's gone past. But I don't know. How do we feel about where the Cats, where we should rank or rate the Cats after this year? Should they say finish at the semi-final stage or finish maybe if they make a prelim? Do they exceed our expectations? Where did we rank them at the start of this year? Because it, because they 
I, I certainly thought that they would tumble down the ladder a little bit and possibly miss finals, but there's there every chance to, to go one more week, two more weeks, and, and maybe even make the grand final. So again, I'll, I'll look at it in the, to- to- in the whole totality. If you had told me after the 2011 grand final that in a few years' time, Geelong's going to get uh, uh, Gary Ablett to the, back to the club. Um, and bring in Patrick and Dangerfield. Bring in Patrick Dangerfield and, but they're not going to win another premiership up until 2019. I would have thought, no way, no way can that happen. Can you have Dangerfield and Ablett in the same team with this Geelong team that's just won the 2011 Grand Final? Yeah, there's no way they're, they're going to get You'd another premiership at that time. So again, yeah. if they get to the, you know, the, the go through six or seven year period without winning a premiership with that team, I, I sort of say they've they've missed my expectations. Well, that's the thing. People will say, well, they won three flags in that five year period. Okay, that's all well and good, but how many players are still around from that team? Maybe. Two yeah, Salwood and yep. and Taylor Hawkins. There's not many. I mean, it's a different team now, and you got to look at it, what they can achieve now. And they should be they should be contending. To think they have not been in a grand final since uh, 2011, yeah, it's not good enough. Every time a coach has been sacked this year, we've talked about it being a win loss industry. And they had the best win loss record this season, equal best, but finished on top of the ladder. And for me, I think that's good enough. We get frustrated with finals. We say, oh, Chris Scott can't win a final. But is good enough good enough? What, I think like, in the modern AFL, I think it is. For I a think... team that should be contending? I mean, good, Carlton finishing 12th or St. Kilda finishing 10th, I mean, that's good enough. They've done well for But Geelong, a team that we, we expect to be contending for a flag, I, I don't know if... Oh, yeah, they'll finish top and they go, they go out in straight sets for the third time. I don't think that's good enough. I reckon if I was a Geelong fan, I'd be fuming at finishing on top or nearabouts and just crashing out in finals most years. I, I don't know. I, I think if you look at it in terms of the industry, it's a, it's a tough industry to, to get up the ladder and, and stay up there. And, you know... We've got two Carlton supporters and a Melbourne fan in myself in this room. We'll be stoked to, to be playing finals every year. But I think once you're there, you've got to be contending and you've got to be doing better and making the same mistakes year after yep. year after and year. And you've got to make the most of it. Uh, yep. I think this is the most important thing. Um, I, just a bit of it off topic, but I spoke to Trent Cochin when I was up in Brisbane after the game and he said, he's like, you know, we, sh- we probably should have won last year, but we, 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 you've got to be in it to win it. And, and that's the whole thing. You, you, you've, you've got to take advantage when you can because you don't get these huge windows. Hawthorne winning three in a row is an anomaly. It doesn't happen often. You've got to take advantage when you have the chance. And Geelong, they have not taken advantage of it. On the flip side of that, Richmond were the minor premiers last year and were easily the best team in the competition and didn't quite make it to the grand final. But they didn't blow it up. There, wasn't, there was nothing wrong. They hit all their KPIs for that year, I can guarantee it, unless the grand final was a KPI. Is that good enough in the modern AFL? Are they hitting their KPIs, their business targets, they're making money? Sometimes that's got to be enough. Not everyone can win a flag every no, year. No, you're not going to win it every year. But if Richmond win it this year and they've won two out of three, you'd say, gee, they've done an extremely good job. But if, it, for Geelong to not make a grand final in six years, you'd say they've they've underperformed. Absolutely. Huge pressure on, on no matter which way you look at it, huge pressure on, on Chris Scott and, and the whole um, Geelong club. So we will be watching intently when they take on the Eagles this weekend. Uh, but it's time to move on. I've had a gutful. Uh, easily our favourite segment. This has grown um, an absolute life of its own. Uh, Jake Michael's opportunity to really um, take the shackles off and let us know what Scotty's goat this week. So what have you got for us, mate? Well, a bit of a short and sharp one this week, and we kind of touched on the cats, but I'm stunned that everyone jumps off. You know, we were just talking about Geelong and how they've, they've had their struggles, and, and I'll be critical of them if they, if they do lose. But I'm stunned that everyone's jumped off the Cats after the loss to, to Collingwood. They were poor, but we all know they're always poor after the week off. They've got a shocking record. West Coast is actually the favourite, the bookies' favourite, to win 
the semi-final against Geelong. I, I can't believe that. They're, they're, this, they're, they're traveling to Melbourne, they're, the bookies they're do travel- Yeah, this <laughs> is unbelievable. Like, you just said it, Jesse. Geelong with minor premiers. They won more games than anyone else. They had the best record. They lose a game, and all of a sudden, oh, no, they're rubbish now. They're not going to win. And, and they lost the game to the team that was the second best to them for the first 15 weeks. It's not like Collingwood were a nobody. They've, they've lost to a pretty good opposition. And a team that has historically always played well against Geelong. Collingwood's always... I know Geelong beat them earlier in the year, but Collingwood always does perform very well against the Cats. And, I mean, we know there's all the talk about where they should play GMHBA Stadium or at the MCG. You know, they're not going to play down in Geelong for finals. We know that, but... I'm stunned. I, I really think it, it, it's crazy. It seems to happen every year, Christian. That te- teams teams are, are great. They get to a qualifying final top four. They lose, and all of a sudden, nah, they're rubbish. They're going to go out in straight so sets. So I had a guy in the office this morning dubbed this overreaction week because it's about the fifth or sixth year in a row where it's just the qualifying final losers are dead in the water, dead and buried. They're no good. And the winners of the elimination final are all of a sudden the they're hot on, teams yeah. and then the informed teams of the competition. So exactly what we're talking about with Geelong and West Coast. Surprisingly, sort of going back uh, the last 19 years, so there's been 38 semi-finals played. 31 of those have been won by the the higher finishing side, so the Geelong and Brisbane's yeah. uh, won 31 of the 38. But again, thinking back for the last six or seven years, we get the same sort of queries and then we hear the same sort of news cycle after every first week of finals is how bad it is looking for these qualifying final losers sort of thing so yeah so you're effectively taking aim at, at me jake after i said i was going to back the two elimination final winners <laughs> this weekend yes well indirectly but yeah i mean it, but if you're not the only one that's the thing and I'm, I'm clearly because you can see that just with the bookies just talking with with people and and what you hear just generally around football is that as you say people jump off the cats quickly and people jump off the lions quickly after after losses and and as, again you can look at those games and you could say well Brisbane kick accurately, they win the game. And Geelong, they start well. They don't let Collingwood run away with it in that first quarter. They probably win that game too. So it's like, they're not, it's not as bad. Nothing's as ever as bad as it seems. And I think they both bounce back this week and both win. And the stats suggest, I mean, every year is different. Every team and every game is different. But the stats do suggest that the, the teams that lose, the qualifying final losers generally bounce back the Correct. week Correct. I couldn't see them both going out yeah. in straight sets. Proof will be in the pudding this week, but fair enough, Jake. Thanks for that, and we will move on. And the three votes goes to... With Matt Walsh, our regular host, um, still gallivanting around Europe, it's my chance to um, look at the, the bright side of the footy industry after Jake um, takes, I guess, the negative view, which... Might um oh, come on. <laughs> might be reflective of our of our world views. But um the obviously the, the Danny Frawler news was horrific and it's really hit the industry hard, but there there may be a, a silver lining and, and there's a groundswell of support for his infamous or famous Golden Fist Award to be included in the official AFL honors list. Um Danny Frawley um always famously stood up for I guess the overlooked um players in this industry, which are the defenders who never get looked at in terms of major awards. And there's a petition going around calling on for the AFL to make his Golden Fist Award an official honour. Um, obviously, there's a long way to go, but Gil McLaughlin this morning said it was something that he'd be looking at. Um, and I think that'd be a really wonderful way for, for all his legacy to be remembered, the fact that he staunchly defended the defenders, if you like. I think we should leave footy out of it. I think that his impact outside of the game is almost more important than what he did on the field. His mental health advocacy the stuff he brought his day job when he was a coach and a player when he was a player was working with kids and getting people excited about footy i think there can be a danny frawley award which would be beautiful similar to a jim steins award 
we make it about mental health advocacy. We can look at someone like Nathan Buckley, for example, who's done fantastic work in that space at Collingwood. I don't want his name to be reduced to who's the best offender. And in four years' time, we're saying, oh, he doesn't deserve the Danny Frawley Award or that's a rubbish award. Let's make it something that means something and we're not going to argue about. Yeah. Well said. I, lo- I love the idea from Jesse. And I'd sort of just pick up, he, definitely with mental health, but he did men's health as a whole. So I remember just uh, over the summer listening to, I'm assuming it was SEN, um, in the off-season, sort of, I don't know what I was doing in the car, but I might be listening at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning and he'd be on sort of, you know, with the... So the off-season host, just talking about men's health, getting people aware of, you know, prostate cancer, all that sort of stuff. So not not just in the mental health space, but just just for men to look after themselves. And it was great coming from, um, you know, he's, he's the all-time leading captain at St Kilda, so he's a leader of men, uh, very larrikin-like. Um, to have him sort of be that vulnerable and to be able to talk about his own health and other men's health and sort of look out for him, is, yeah, it was a, a big legacy to leave. It's a really important message that, that I guess is starting to become more apparent um, in the AFL industry, that the fact that you can speak up and, and it's okay to be a little bit vulnerable at times. Um, but Christian, you're the only one in this room that had a little bit to do um, with Danny on a personal basis. Um, can you tell us what sort of guy he was person to person? Yeah, so the most I deal with him, I, I work in with the All-Australian uh, Committee, so sit in their meetings each year and sort of help them with the stats. Um, so I think I've been doing it since about 2002, 2012 or 2013. The one year that stands out off the top of my head, there was actually a year where... Again, just a lot of banter around the room. Obviously, some big, you know, heavy hitters. Um, you know, most of the people in that room have played 200, 300 games of AFL football between them. There was just one year Danny Frawley was on fire with just these stories of, you know, of either ex-defenders or himself. Or, but basically, Gil McLaughlin stopped after about, you know, halfway through the All Australian meeting. I don't, I don't think it was a final selection meeting, but we're trying to cut the squad down to 70. We probably had 40 names on the board. Um, probably an hour into the meeting. We had to stop the meeting for 20, 30 minutes just so we could listen to Danny Frawley stories. And he just, one after the other, had about four or five rippers. I don't think any of them I could repeat on air. But basically, Gillam McLaughlin sort of, he just railroaded the whole Australian meeting. He said, no, nah, we've got more impressing, more important matters at the moment. We need to hear more stories from Spud. And he just, he had the room in raptures for about half an hour. So again, just um, very funny bloke. And yeah, dealing with him with all Australian, just... Yeah, he was so involved in the AFL industry, whether it was as an ex-player, helping St Kilda, as we said, outside of it, men's health, helping with junior football, what he's done with Fox Footy on the bounce, special comments on SEN. He's just had his finger in the pie all over. Yeah, a a big legacy in football. Yeah, he'll have a huge legacy um, no matter what. Um, And obviously very saddened by his passing. Um, that's just about uh, time for us. We here we are here, of course, for um, footy tips, and a lot of competitions are ongoing um, through the finals. Um, another difficult round. My my whole year of tipping has been difficult. Um, but uh, what are you up to? <laughs> I'd be lucky to be cracking the ton at the moment, um, which isn't great. But the average on the weekend was two, so just a fifty percent um, uh, success rate for most punters, which shows how difficult punting has been uh, or tipping has been all all through the season. Um, and another. Um, Another competition that, that Footy Tips is running was the perfect bracket competition where you have to predict all the games from uh, from the whole way through the finals. So it's almost like a knockout uh, or a, a long-term view of who's going to win. And of the almost uh, 62,000 brackets, there's still 2,500 um, that are alive, so to speak. 2,500 Collingwood fans, I'd, <laughs> I'd suggest. Yeah, well, I mean, they've done well. So they, they've still got a chance. They have to predict um, each winner of every game through the finals and also the margins in the last two week of finals. So it's a pretty tough one to get exactly right, um, but it's a fun one to do. Um, 
but uh, looking ahead to this this weekend, so far the split for tipsters is 43% going for Geelong, 57% West Coast See, jumping they're still, off. They're still not on them. <laughs> but the other game is the other way around, Jake. So you'll be happy that 80% of uh, tipsters so far are going for the Lions and only 20% are going on my boys, the Giants. So... We I'm shall. surprised that is such a big Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm surprised in both those yeah. figures, the West Coast being so high up and mm. Brisbane's being so far ahead of Giants. Yeah. No wonder the no wonder the tipping averages are so low. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a huge weekend and there'll be heaps more to discuss next week. Um, but as always, uh, rate and subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Footy Tips AFL Podcast.